As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, a handy catch-up on the big international talking points. England winning wrong-sized goals, Napoleonic battleground venues, and Luxembourg's 1-0 win at the Republic of Ireland. Plus, we preview Poland, why Sean Bailey's not the only one worried about the polls in London, a salute to great footballing statues, Derby County, and more drama from the Intertotally Cup. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And hello, listener. Somewhat belatedly today, thank you for your patience. It is March 29th, uh, 2021, for those keeping track. And we're joined on Totally by Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Morning, James. Also, Charlie Eccleshare. Morning, James. And a warm welcome to Sasha Gurionov. Hello, James. All right, Sash. Uh, what was your favourite bit of this international footballing weekend, Sasha? Uh, well, I'll probably have to go with... Uh... Uh, Josip Ilicic against Russia, a lovely half volley. Of course, Russia went on to win the game 2-1, so we can look at these things in the more favourable light. But uh, I thought uh, Ilicic uh, seemed to be like an all-round good egg. Um, Artun Zuba, who scored the two goals for Russia, said, you know, talked about how much he enjoyed watching Ilicic play in this game. You know, big guy, but he can turn either way, just a joy to watch. There was another Instagram post after his day uh, with Miranchuk. They're both at Atalanta, and it just says, friend, the two of them standing there. So Ilicic, all-round good egg. Oh, that's nice. That's part of, I think, of the spirit of international mm. football. Friendship across borders and that kind of thing. Also, wrong-sized goalposts, which uh, I, I know excited a lot of you. Uh, Daniel, was that one of your takeaways? I wouldn't call it the best moment of my international weekend. What, what was the <laughs> best uh, moment? I think the, the Ireland result is the standout. In the kind of general theme, I enjoyed the fact that the start of the international week began with a various people saying all these countries should have to pre-qualify including Luxembourg and Malta and and then football dealt a very swift karmic hand two or three right. days later ha. all right and Charlie for you I enjoyed Georgia taking the lead uh, against Spain and the proper crowd noise uh, that was quite fun I also quite enjoyed watching Germany um, they didn't rack up that many goals but um, I like seeing Leroy Sane just kind of gliding through the pitch and Serge Gnabry I think they looked um, they looked pretty good mm. a nation that has had its problems of late uh, but seems to be 
on the road to recovery. All right, excellent. Well, let's get a quick check on some of the headlines then uh, from the uh, last two or three days of international qualifiers. England are two for two after wins over San Marino and Albania. Republic of Ireland, though, lost 1-0 at home to Luxembourg. Spain came within a whisker of continuing their winless start, needing a 93rd-minute winner against Georgia in Tbilisi. Republic of Ireland lost 1-0 to Luxembourg. Zlatan returned to the Swedish national side and they're off to a perfect start and Republic of Ireland lost to Luxembourg, land of cows, bankers and a radio station. Loads of other stuff happened too, but only one place to start there, really. Uh, Let's dial up Ireland and ask them to explain themselves answering the phone. It's Ken Early of Second Captains. Ken, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. Not at all, James. It's a pleasure. What's the mood? Could you sum up the mood of your entire nation for us? Uh, revolutionary fervor and uproar, um, comparable to the religious wars of um, the early 17th century in Germany. Uh, that's that's basically how we're how we feel about the the football situation here. Um, this guy, Stephen Kenny, took over, promising the earth. Uh, Ten games later, no wins. Uh, three goals, uh, just lost at home to Luxembourg. Well, that's not very good, is it? Is what uh, one group of people are saying. When other group of people are saying, "Time, he needs time." Right. Uh, you don't, you don't, you don't get anywhere without a little bit of time. And let's not ignore the fact that Luxembourg are the fastest risers in world football, which is nice for them, but doesn't help Stephen Kenny very much or Ireland or, or this World Cup a qualifying process. Briefly, did you have high hopes for him? Did everyone have high hopes for him when he came in? And if so, why do you think it has gone so very wrong so far? Well, yeah, I did have high hopes for him in the sense that uh, I think he represented improvement on the previous couple of managers, uh, the previous three managers, Mick McCarthy, Martin O'Neill and Giovanni Trapattoni. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not seriously going to sit here and say Stephen Kenny, you know, is a greater manager than Giovanni Trapattoni. But Trapattoni, by the time he had come to manage Ireland, you know, he was getting paid two million euros a year. It was it was nice. Uh, he, he didn't particularly wasn't hugely interested in who the players were or like watching them or understanding anything about them. You know, he kind of knew eleven players and he didn't. That was sort of it. You know, with with Trap. Um, I felt with Kenny, he would have the kind of deep knowledge of Irish football that was necessary in, in order for us with our fairly diminished um, playing pool to actually get anywhere. And also, he had the attitude that we can't just take this ultra-conservative defensive approach. It doesn't work. Have we not seen how many times it doesn't work? Martin O'Neill, you know, kind of battled through to a playoff against Denmark, lost 5-1, you know, we can't keep doing it this way. We've got to try a different way. So this is what um, Stephen Kenny sort of came in aiming to do. Uh, but unfortunately, the entire thing has been happening in empty stadiums um, with swathes of the squad being wiped out by, you know, COVID positives or close contacts. Um, 10 changes between the Bulgaria game before Christmas and the Serbia. I mean, 10 changes. It's like an entirely different team between mm. the last game and the, and the Serbia game. There's been no opportunity for any sort of team to cohere, for any kind of identity to emerge. It's just been a complete mess. Right. And the question is whether you think this guy just can't cut it. Mm. We've seen it. We've seen enough. Or whether you think all of these other extraordinary circumstances might have something to do with the failure of, <laughs> of things to come together. Right. Well, the thing is, Saturday's game was meant to be the opportunity for the team to do a, a lot of those things. 
would it rank as the worst night in the history of the Republic of Ireland's football team? No, absolutely not. Because the, because Luxembourg are, I mean, Kenny Cunningham, I think, was ridiculed for saying something on television to this effect. But Luxembourg are not a bad team, at least not when you compare them to Ireland. Uh, Ireland's had worse uh, results than this. I mean, if you think back to the mid-90s, uh, we dreamed nil all with Liechtenstein uh, when Jack Charlton was the manager. Uh, four years ago, we lost at home 1-0 to a country with half the population of Luxembourg, which is Iceland. Now, right. Iceland, We've all of been course... There. Yeah, I mean, Iceland are a team that that, that uh, obviously have some big uh, achievements under the belt, but this is a tiny country. Now, what's the difference between Iceland and Ireland or Luxembourg and Ireland is that these countries haven't wasted the last 20 years being chronically mismanaged. Uh, you know, the, the best-selling book in Ireland in 2020 uh, of any kind, I don't mean just sports book, the best-selling book in Ireland in 2020 was Champagne Football by Mark Ty and Paul Rowan, the Sunday Times journalist, about the FAI and John mm. Mulaney, the, the now-departed chief executive, and his um, th this fantastic era of misrule over which he presided. And we are picking up the bill for that. You know, it's it's like while we have just been while we've wasted two decades, countries like Luxembourg or Iceland. I mean, I'm not just talking about England and Germany. You see the the, the quality of players that are emerging from the academies in England now. Um, you know, we we in Ireland get annoyed because uh, every time we play a game, a player from the opposing team says something in in the press conference like, "Well, it's never easy against the British style," and we say. Well, of course, you know, we're not British and it's, this is typical of the ignorance uh, and so on and so forth. But those days are going to be over pretty soon. Nobody is going to be comparing Ireland to the British style, which is now increasingly becoming, you know, what, what, is, the, what is that style now? It's like um, uh, Jaden Sancho and Raheem Sterling and Phil Foden and Trent Alexander-Arnold and Jack Grealish, sadly. You know, this is like, we're, we're talking about a high level of technical ability, pace, flair, tactical uh, intelligence. You know, we're not talking about kick and rush anymore. So, so at least that's something we're not going to have to deal with being being called British. Nobody is mixing us up with that anymore. We're so far behind these countries, and that the notion that this is our worst, our lowest ever one. This just shows our delusion. It shows our epic delusion, grandiosity, refusal to accept reality. We are not a team that can expect to beat Luxembourg. The goal was scored by the only player on the field who played in the Champions League uh, this season. If that wasn't the worst result in the Republic's uh, footballing history, perhaps keep a space in that category for uh, the next game, which is against the team that beat Luxembourg in their <laughs> last game, Qatar. What do you think, And What's your prediction? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, I, to be honest, I don't know what to expect from Qatar, apart from if they beat Luxembourg, I've got a lot of respect for them, uh, you know, as a, as a footballing entity. I mean, obviously, Ireland now are wondering if maybe we missed the bus for boycotting the World Cup, uh, which, which <laughs> left left the station last Tuesday before we headed to Belgrade. There's no question the morale is, has been shattered by this. And now they've got to go to Budapest and play against Qatar for some reason. And Stephen Kenny's got to kind of get them up for this. Come on, lads, we've got to show a bit of pride. We've got to, you know, it's just like... Oh, what you God, want, Ken, I think, after a bad defeat is another big game straight away, a chance to get back on the horse. It's not so, a game, though. It's a, yeah, I mean, exactly, you know. So it's no, just, we, we don't have a game for six months. Yeah. So we don't even have a game in June. Very briefly, very briefly, when that next kind of proper game rolls around in six months, will Stephen Kenny be in charge? I believe, I'm one of the people who thinks 
there's still too many sort of mitigating or confounding factors in in what's happened over the last few months. I mean, he's only his first game was in September. It's all been this pandemic context. It's there's never been like a consistent run of having the same players available. I I just feel as though you still can't judge that. I don't feel any Irish manager should be sacked until they've been booed out of the stadium by the Ireland fans, like all the sacked Irish managers before them. And I hope that one day at least Stephen Kenny is given uh, is given that. Wow, quite a moment this for uh, supporters of the Republic. What's been what's what was your worst moment? Or what's been your worst moment so far, uh, Daniel? Is it? watching England I think probably Euro 2016 Iceland because that was a a decent squad and you know England are often accused of arrogance but um, I think rightly everyone kind of assumed that they were going through to a a quarter-final there and we were all hoisted by that particular petard Mm. you're too young for San Marino 93 I, I am, yes, thankfully. What, what about the owl nesting above uh, the opposition goalpost in the in the Algeria game in, in 2010? Yeah, that I, remember, that I remember that one. That was for your, that was your Wayne Rooney moment, wasn't it? That was, your, it was nice to hear yeah. your own fans booing, twit-to-wooing you. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do remember that also not fondly. Right. Charlie, were your worst moment watching England? Or any uh, nation, actually. Yeah, it probably would be England. I, I would pick either that nil-nil draw against Algeria and South Africa. Uh, that was pretty, uh, felt like an idea. And then also the, was that Andorra? I think it was Andorra away, which England did end up winning. But the the sort of vitriol that Steve McLaren received uh, when it was nil-nil was just pretty horrendous and felt like the point at which England had been heading for a while. So one of mm. those two horror shows probably. Any game involving the England band also qualifies. Uh, Russia, uh, Sasha, they've afforded you one or two Nadirs. Oh, yeah, I think that is a fine selection to pick from, but the the one that tops the list is uh, 1999, uh, Russia-Ukraine in uh, Moscow. Russia started the qualifying with three defeats, then won six straight, including a win against at Stade de France against France. And last game, they um, had to beat Ukraine. They were 1-0 up, wasted loads of chances, and then the keeper threw one in in the 88th minute. Have they played each other since? Because Russian and Ukraine teams can't play each other, can they? No, and they get separated uh, yeah. in Europe as well. I think the same as Armenian and Azeri team as well. And uh, yeah, so I can't even think last time we played each other. Uh, no, but 99 is, is the one that really right. is seared into my mind. Okay. Well, this, this is a tricky time for our uh, Irish supporting friends, but I mean, Ken makes the point that Luxembourg are not to be not to be maybe categorised too lightly, Daniel. No, they are an improving nation, certainly. They were 186 in the world in 2006, and they're now in the top 100 in the world. You know, they're ranked above Cyprus. They're ranked around the same as Armenia, who, you know, these aren't necessarily heavyweights, but they also aren't... I have to say, those are not names that necessarily shift my understanding of Luxembourg. Okay, I'll sell you with this one, James. They did draw nil nil against France. That uh, that's more impressive, yeah. Can I, can, can I throw in some stats as well? This is yep. their third away win ever in the qualifiers, uh, in 124 games, uh, ten draws, 111 defeats. First away win in qualifiers in 12 years, um, etc. And so on. They're not that good. Right. They're not. But Ireland aren't that good either. You know, they did have players from from Mainz and from Young Boys and from Dynamo Kiev and. 
it sounds very trite and unfair, but the winning goal was a Dynamo Kiev striker scoring mm. past a Rochdale goalkeeper, which um, is not a complete sell of the island team because that's their lowest ranked player. But it, it's not a t- the team that started against Serbia didn't have a single midfielder or attacker who had played a minute for their Premier League club in the you know in the the game before the break. So this isn't the island that many of us remember. It's not a very good team. Right. As for Luxembourg, we'll get a, another measure of their quality when they take on Portugal on Tuesday, which should be an interesting game. Portugal themselves coming off a controversial result. They went 2-0 up against Serbia, a brace from Diogo Jota, and then Serbia came roaring back through Alexander Mitrovic before Cristiano Ronaldo thought he'd scored a winner in uh, time added on, only for the linesman not to give it. Did it cross the line? Did anybody see a definitive a definitive replay? I just, I, I, having given a kind of wholesome answer for best moment of the weekend with the Georgia going ahead, what am I talking about? <laughs> Clearly that schadenfreude was the moment of the weekend with Cristiano Ronaldo's indignation at that goal not going in. It did mm. look like it was in. I also, I would love, I mean, the, the percentage of which his anger was at the fact that he had a goal disallowed on his pursuit of yeah. that record compared to Portugal's two drop points. I would love to know deep down that proportion. I imagine about 90-10. Um, yeah, it, it did look like it was ever so slightly over the line. It's, I also found it annoying because clearly goal line technology is is really good. Like no one's against goal line technology, are they? So it seems a bit odd to like strip it all out. And then it kind of gives, I don't know, kind of strength to this idea that like, see, you get rid of VAR, now you want VAR. And it's like, no, we don't want VAR. We're happy with goal line technology. Um, it, it, clearly that's really useful. Um, but it, it, it did look ever so slightly over the line. But right. uh, great moment. Yeah, Ronaldo's reaction, throwing his armband to the floor in disgust. We'll touch more on uh, Ronaldo uh, later on. Uh, Malta, though, Daniel, you mentioned. uh, And uh, they're in Russia's group. And crikey, uh, you beat them, Sasha, in your opening qualifier. But they actually outshot you. And then this extraordinary game where they went 2-0 up at, at Slovakia. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was sort of half following that game. Most people in Russia didn't watch the Malta game because they knew it was going to be a pretty turgid affair. Russia are quite an agricultural side. So if they have the task of breaking down the opposition, this is when it, it gets really ugly. And I mean, if anything, against Malta, they were really helped by an appalling goalkeeping performance by Henry Bonello, uh, who just dived out of the way a lot. Um, so, you know, like the San Marino goalkeeper um, effectively kept, kept the score down against England. I think this is a situation where Malta could have done with the goalkeeper doing the same, but he didn't. But they were, you know, they were quite well sort of drilled. They pressed from time to time, they defended quite well, they cracked up the chance as well. And also, if, if, if you look at Albania's uh, first goal against Slovakia by Luke Gambin, uh, this was the sort of range from which they were lining up the shots against Russia as well. So they were definitely working on it. So I think I also, I'm also wondering whether the Nations League gives these teams a bit of confidence because, I mean, they were obviously in the bottom tier of that, but they played six games. They won two, drawn three, I think lost one to the Pharaohs quite late. So maybe that gives them a bit of confidence in terms of how they play. However, also taking, you know, if you look at the country itself, you know, it's half a million population. You might, you might argue that traditionally football hasn't been particularly well developed there. Um, so maybe they should actually be doing better if you look at the likes of Iceland. But certainly they could have caused a surprise there. And also, like Russia's group is complete, complete, complete mess at the moment because Russia are, in fact, the only team not to have dropped any points after two games. So it's kind of opening up on them nicely. All right. Two wins out of two. Malta and Slovenia with Artem Juba. Daniel looking impressive. Yeah, he is a, a very old-school-looking first-division striker. 
uh, a kind of Lee Chapman style. Although we are obliged, Adam Hurry isn't on the pod today, but we are obliged to say he does have good feet because um, having kind of shoved away another central defender, he does then finish the ball quite nicely with his left foot more often than not. Um, But yeah, just that he manages to push defenders just below the limit that the referee would think about giving a foul, which is perfect. Because, you know, he was always keen to to move to the Premier League, but hasn't um, ever really worked out for him. But also in terms of good fit for a big man, like I watched him play like 10, 12 years ago on on the 3G at Luzhniki. The ball just was bouncing everywhere. I just couldn't believe this guy's going to be professional football. So he really Mm. had to work at it. And also like, you know, he's like definitely larger than life character um but he, in the world cup year for example he was dropped by zenith he was sent out on loan uh to arsenal to learn and you know he, he put the graft in and he basically worked his way back into the national team at the very last moment and it became the start of the tournament in a way i think he sort of person like personifies that team um Churchesov, uh, the manager is quite sort of brash doesn't take criticism very well very mouthy and zuba seems to be kind of part of that but yet at the same time he's not particularly refined um, but he is now actually second uh, most goals for Russia, 29 and 49. I think it, it's been pointed out only one of them came against the top 10 side, Spain, um, at the World Cup. But, um, you know, he just keeps on proving doubters wrong, and I think he really enjoys doing that. Okay, who's who's top scorer for Russia? Uh, Kerzhakov, 30, so okay. he's just one behind. Yeah, lovely goal that you, you, you touched on from Luke Gambin of Malta, kicking off their, uh, their remarkable performance away at Slovakia. Lovely curling effort. Charlie... I just wondered on Zuba, which Premier League team over the last, say, 10 years would he be most suited to? I mean, maybe an Allardyce <laughs> yeah, side, it's... but it, it, if there's one, Sasha, that particularly jumps in your mind. Uh, maybe even the, the, I guess Allardyce's Bolton are just a, would have been a bit too early for him. How, how old is he now, Zuba? 32, I think. Yeah, so he just missed the boat now. Uh, I think they were having, not this time, I think maybe January last year or I think the window before that. I think, yeah, again, it's like Sub Everton and I think West Ham were connected with him, but they just haven't worked it out. I, was, I said Lee Chapman before. He actually is very, very similar to an in-form Andy Carroll, isn't he? In that he, he wins headers and gives away a lot of fouls, but with his left foot, actually he scores goals that you think, yeah, I didn't think you were going to score that, so fair play. Yeah, I, I think you also have to point out, I mean, the two goals that he scored was against Jan Oblak. Okay, Jan Oblak isn't in a great team, but he put it in, in the corners where Oblak physically couldn't reach the, those, those shots. Mm. Well, quick roundup of one or two other key results uh, in case you weren't watching everything this weekend, listener. Uh, Scotland opened up uh, with a draw with Austria and then Sunday they added a 1-1 in Israel and they'll be discussing Steve Clark's pair of draws on the Totally Scottish Football Show. Uh, Scotland currently third in their group, four points behind Denmark, who beat Moldova 8-0. Woof. That's a record score in a World Cup qualifier. Spain very nearly drew their first two games. They had a 1-1 with Greece Thursday. Then it took a 93rd-minute strike from Danny Olmo to get past Georgia. Georgia, who managed by Willy Sagnol these days. Italy's unbeaten streak is now 24 games. Uh, they've had wins over Northern Ireland and then Sunday, 2-0 uh, away at Bulgaria. Their last four results have all been 2 nils actually. Curious. Turkey are making their best ever start to a World Cup qualifying campaign. After their 4-2 win over the Netherlands, they beat Norway a 3-0 away. Uh, Montenegro in that group also off to a perfect start, sharing the lead with Turkey. Netherlands lying third for now. Czech Republic held Belgium 1-1. They also share the lead in that group. They're four points ahead of fourth place Wales, who will be facing the Czechs next in Cardiff. Uh, Andre Kudela will not be making the trip to that game. 
he's currently wanted for questioning over his uh, alleged racist abuse of Glen Kamara in Slavia Prague's Europa League win in Glasgow. Protests. We mentioned last time Norway's uh, decision to make their qualifying campaign an act of protest almost against uh, the World Cup in Qatar and the human rights abuses uh, there. Uh, Germany adding their voice to that cause, or at least wearing T-shirts pre-game saying human rights, which is quite non-specific. It's hard really to disagree with that. Any any other nations uh, joining this this particular movement? Well, Harry Kane did speak about um, England's players and said it was something that they would discuss of sending a message. Um it seems a no-brainer to me for players to do it. Um, I understand there will be a train of thought that suggests that it's a little bit slightly two-faced um, protesting against what's going on in, in Qatar and, and the human rights issues around the building of the stadium while simultaneously sweeping through a qualifying campaign that allows you to play in those stadia. But making a statement is better than not making a statement. And, and the reality is is that the players will not choose whether England participate in that tournament, um, but they can choose to to send a message. Hmm. Yeah, I thought it was strange. Um, Harry Kane was criticised in some quarters, you know, as if like, oh, well, what good is you know th- that? It's an empty gesture. But as Daniel says, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, you know, they're not necessarily going to be making that decision. It is up to the federations. And um, yeah, at, at, at least acknowledging it and putting it out there will, you know, it's, it's better than not doing anything. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the Dutch mentioned something as well that, they had concerns about this ever since the World Cup was awarded, uh, but they are still they still don't know what is the best course of action, basically. Right. Switzerland's game with Lithuania was delayed by 20 minutes because one of the goals was four inches too high. That's quite a lot. When the game got underway, Jordan Shakiri scored what it what proved to be the only goal in that goal after two minutes. Yeah, there was an incident um, earlier in the season when Spurs were playing in North Macedonia, Europa League qualifier against Shkendia, and it was actually the other way round that the goal was too low. And mm. uh, I think it was Larice and Joe Hart in their warm-up noticed it uh, and kind of pointed it out and it was changed. I mean, they might have thought, well, this is kind of good for us, you know, smaller goals, um, but they, they were honest about it. Whereas obviously on this occasion, it makes more sense that the goalies might be like, Guys, this isn't ideal, but it, it does seem strange that this that this can happen um, at, at that sort of level of football and quite a sort of farcical Sunday League style situation of carting out a couple of goals. Uh, it seems to be this is a Swiss thing because Spartak Moscow had their run in with FC Sion in um, the first round of the UEFA Cup in 1997. They beat them 1 0 away. And then there was weird shenanigans at the Locomotive Stadium before the game in the return leg uh, because suddenly uh, there was these strange men wandering around uh, asking for tape measures and stuff. Uh, so in the end, they all went out and uh, measured the goal. And officially, in the protocol, the goal was 15 centimeters too low in the middle, like six inches. Uh, so everyone signed off on them, played on. Uh, Sparta got the 2-2 draw, went through. Then Sion appealed. Uh, they, people were going back and forth from Geneva. Sion wanted Spartak thrown out. In the end, they were allowed to replay it. And Spartak, very angry, understandably, with a very angry crowd behind them, won 5-1. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, I think in the end, they found the explanation. Apparently, there was an athletics meet at the stadium three weeks earlier, and they didn't put the goals back in properly. Uh, but wow. everyone carried on playing until basically Sion decided to notice this. But why was Spartak enraged? It's their fault they put the goals up wrong. Well, Spartak were enraged because they thought, well, we're better than Sion. They're just nitpicking. And in the end, they didn't appeal this at any stage until, I think, literally just before kickoff. So in the end, the right. kickoff was delayed by half an hour. So it felt like Sion were basically trying to pull on non-levers to, to go through. 
It's the same for both teams. I imagine you know the, the, the manager is saying <laughs> no. it's no, no, no more of an advantage for them having this weirder, smaller or bigger goal. Unless you knew, Charlie, unless you knew True, that the goal yeah. was smaller and you could... Yeah, such a key part of football, the frame is... marginal gains. Exactly, yeah. Now, uh, major gains for England uh, over the two qualifying matches so far. We'll be getting uh, everyone's thoughts on those and what awaits against Poland Wednesday next. At Paddy Power, we know competition for the remote control can be fierce at the weekends. So, in order to give the non-football-loving occupants of your house something to do, here are some of our top suggestions. Go for a walk. Walk the dog. Walk to the shops. Go cycling. Cycle the dog. Recycle the dog. Just go! All very good options, we say. And that's not the only one. If one leg of your 4-plus-fold acre lets you down, get a free bet on all football leagues and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg on an exclusive exclude shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus begamblerware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Two for two for England, no wobbles here so far. Uh, Daniel, two games that they were expected to win and they did. Any thoughts? Yeah, two games they were probably expected to win 5 nil and 2 nil. if you quizzed or polled fans beforehand and they did exactly that. I I mean, I worked on the game and this period of international football, if you know, the three months before a tournament is the absolute nightmare moment for, for managers because there's absolutely nothing to be gained. England couldn't have made any steps forward in the last week and they could certainly have taken steps backwards, you know, in terms of injuries, in terms of the style not working, in terms of drop points. And in that context, yeah, you have to say 10 out of 10 because everything seemed to go pretty well. There were there were sluggish patches. There's no doubt about that against Albania. And I'm not just talking about the pitch, which was really sticky and, and slow. Uh, and there is a, a slight issue still, I think, about playing the two holding midfielders and it, it sort of clogging up the service to the final third, which means Kane drops deep, which can leave a little bit of a vacuum in the penalty area. But... They won 2 0 and they won 5 0, and, and that's about it. Yeah, the second half against Albania was, was uh, much more impressive stuff. Spookily, this game in Tirana took place exactly 20 years to the day since England's last trip uh, to that fair city, which is uh, a game that's famous for being the time when the most players from one club turned out for England. It was seven Man United players. That was early, very early Sven era, wasn't it? In fact, that mm. yeah, yeah that may right. yeah. that may even have been his first set of competitive games. But yeah, I, I thought yesterday was pretty good. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't glamorous, especially, but I think it was a fine result. And as you say, James, the second half was a lot better. I mean, two nil. You mentioned Italy getting four in a row. Two nil is my favourite scoreline. I love a two nil. To me, it speaks to just a level of control. You haven't overexerted yourself. You've kept a clean sheet. You've done what you needed to do. And I thought yesterday was was very much was very much that kind of 2-0 some impressive you, performances as well were, were, were you watching nervously think I hope they <laughs> don't score a third absolutely yeah well I think a th- the, the weird thing is as well with these games is all we for most people unless you really know your your football 
all we know of Albania is kind of this game. So if England beat them 5-0, then we're probably saying, oh, well, Albania are just clearly a really bad side. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, 2-0 is just like, oh, then they, they can't be that bad. So, yeah, I was very nervously watching as Sterling went through late on, uh, <laughs> you know, praying he wasn't going to ruin my, my favourite scoreline. We talked about Sven. I think I think one thing that has become clear, not just in the last week, is that this is the best group of attacking midfielders we've had since since the Ericsson era. You, know, you look at the list of players who didn't start in that position for England yesterday. You know, Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho, Jack Grealish, Madison, Barnes, Saka, Lingard. You know, there is so much competition for places there that you know, Raheem Sterling had a hand in both goals, and yet you'd probably say yesterday was a minus in terms of his you know, cementing that starting place necessarily. So you know, there's so much competition for places and that can only be a good thing. John Sands writing in saying, what is the best midfield combination for England at the Euros, especially if Henderson is out injured, uh, Rice and Ward-Prowse? That, that's more the de- defensive side of things. But who, who would be your midfield at the moment? Well, I think that the question is, as Daniel says, there is this debate as to whether you go with that as two sitters or what I think a lot of people want is to play with kind of one sitter like Rice and then two free eights either side of him that kind of Man City model and it does look like we have the personnel to do that I I think for for me as someone who just wants to see England playing well and be exciting that free eights is really appealing and the idea of having a Rice or a Henderson with say a Mount um, and a Foden maybe Mm. and then you've got the three attackers is is really attractive, but I guess it depends slightly on the opposition. You know, it looks like in the last 16, assuming England win the group, they're going to have, what is it, one of France, Portugal or Germany? Is that the other team in that yeah. group? Yeah, yeah. So, then, so then maybe you're thinking, OK, you, you probably do need two sitters for that game. Um, but certainly it would be nice in, in at least one of those group games for us to play in that more attacking way. But I just don't really see it. It looks like Southgate is pretty wedded to having um, those two sitting midfielders I mean, I would say as well, just on that, what's worked really well for Spurs, if you're going to build the team around Kane, which I think you have to, is, you know, he is going to score goals and get in the box, but he's also going to drop deep. And we saw that. And so having guys like Sterling and Rashford probably to run into that space he vacates is probably more useful than overloading the team with, um, you know, number 10s, which is kind of what Kane's going to want to do himself, despite the fact we've got a lot of good players who can play that position as well. Did you also see Karen Carney pointed out yesterday um, in terms of those holding, two holding midfielders with two centre-backs, they're kind of former defensive box and the other six players can just run around and play lots of football. So she, I think her argument mm. is this actually frees up the team perhaps to play better. I suspect that the only way Southgate only plays one of those sitters is if he, if he plays a three at the back and plays mm. this kind of 3-4-3 three, three that allows the, the wing-backs to push on and that leaves us in a position where really we're picking fullbacks as wingbacks and um, then we maybe only pick Declan Rice and he can kind of hold. I I think otherwise he will just pick the two because I think he would rather, you know, it's Charlie's favourite scoreline and I think he would rather um, go through that group stage being fairly businesslike and um, slightly robotic than have to shift everything for a last 16 game is my suspicion. Mm. In the earlier game on Thursday, Mason Mount really impressing against a medium-sized hill. Uh, I think he created eight chances in the first half, which is the most that anyone's done in in a single match since Xavi in about 2008. But is he the big winner, do you think, of this Euros being a year later, of the delay of the, of the next major tournament for England? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I mean, Mount 
would be up there. Luke Shaw as well, who now I thought played really well yesterday and looks like a, for me, would probably be the first choice left back. Calvin Phillips as well, obviously now being a kind of established Premier League player. But I actually think both for him and for the team, Harry Kane, if you cast your, it feels like a lifetime ago, but cast your minds back a year, he was out injured and would have was out from New Year's Day and we would have had one of those horrible sagas of will he be fit, won't he be fit, um, which both for him and England would have been so unhelpful. So what a huge benefit potentially for England that you know he's rather than being off the back of a long injury and there's all this, there'd be all that speculation, he's mm. off the back of a brilliant season. I mean, hopefully, I hope I haven't jinxed him there and he doesn't get injured between now and then, but that both for him and the team could make a massive difference. Yeah, Yuri Geller, the big loser, of course, in that, that <laughs> circumstance. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd throw in John Stones and Calvin Phillips, yeah, as the as very obvious names. Phillips, because he, championship players just don't get a chance, um, understandably so. And, and John Stones, because he's gone on this kind of magnificent career arc where he's probably first choice defender now. All right, well, next up for England Wednesday are Poland, who are currently in second place in the group. They had a 3-3 away in Hungary. They followed that up with a 3-0 win against Andorra. To tell us a little bit more about Poland, let's hear from Polska football expert Ryan Hubbard, author of From Partition to Solidarity, the first 100 years of Polish football. Ryan, uh, thank you for joining us. First of all, how, how big a fixture is this for Poland? It's massive. It's it's probably one of the top two fixtures. Uh, obviously, neighbours Germany are the big one, but um, England's always been a massive game for Poland, stemming back to probably 1973 and the whole knocking England out of the World Cup in the qualifying stage. It is a big one for Poland, definitely. And also for the qualifying for this this uh, prospective World Cup, the, the fact that Poland started off with that 3-3 draw on Thursday means they're already playing catch-up to Gareth Southgate's side. It is a really impressive-looking uh, Poland squad going through the names. But then again, it, it was before the World Cup in Russia as well, and they stank the place out then. So is the team going to live up to expectations this time? They have a habit of uh, not performing on the big stage uh, recently. Um, 2018, obviously, being... Uh, the most recent one, but 2012 on their own patch uh, was also not the most impressive when, mm. when they had some decent names back then as well. I think a lot of it comes down to the manager. Um, obviously, they've just uh, brought in Paolo Sosa, which was a bit of a surprise. Now, not many people were expecting that. So it's it's how he can get them playing. He's he's only had the two games with them so far, and that's pretty much all he's had with them. So he's he's got to build his own style. He's got to make his own mark on the team. Uh, We've seen glimpses of it so far in the two games against Hungary and uh, Andorra. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how they do it against, you know, one of the bigger teams or, you know, the biggest team in the group. Definitely. I'm glad you were surprised as well by Paolo Sosa uh, arriving on the Poland bench. What, what was behind that? Do you think? There were lots of questions over there. Former coach, uh, Jerzy Brzezinczyk, even after qualifying for the for the Euros, the performances weren't great. Um, they, although they did seem to qualify quite easily on the pitch, it didn't sort of translate to that. Um, performances were lacking. He struggled to get the best out of Lewandowski, and and I think that's the big thing. If if you're a Poland coach and you can't get the best out of Lewandowski, then perhaps you're not the right man for the job. Well, as I say, looking through the team, there's so many exciting names. Also, I mean, aside from Milik and Piontek, there's also the likes of uh, Zielinski, Josriak. Defensively, uh, Kamil Glick, 
an old favourite of mine, Bednarek, and of course uh, Wojciech Szczesny in, in goal. Do you anticipate them having quite a rough night of it on uh, Wednesday? Um, against Hungary, they, they were defensively very slack. Um, Glick didn't start the game against Hungary, which was a bit of a surprise for, for everyone. Uh, and he opted to play three at the back as well. Um, and they looked very shaky. Szczesny as well looked, looked quite shaky. He was probably at fault for the uh, first Hungary goal. So I think there was a bit of getting used to it. But as soon as he brought Glick on in the second half, things did look a lot more solid. The Andorra game is obviously <laughs> when you're playing against an Andorra team that only have one shot uh, during the 90 minutes, it's, it's very difficult to judge. But they did look a, li- a little bit more settled, which which is a positive going into going into the England game. Mm. But England are obviously a completely different kettle of fish and they're, they're going to offer a lot more threat to those back three. So it could be a tough night for them. How much is the uh, coronavirus outbreak that they've had inside the Poland camp going to affect team selection, do you think? Um, the two players who have missed out, so so we have Mateusz Klik. Uh, he was probably in line to start, possibly alongside uh, Krikowiak in the part of midfield. That was probably a big um, a big loss for Poland. The, the second one was the goalkeeper, Łukasz Skorupski, who is not really expected to be anywhere near the, near the first team. It doesn't seem to have affected the players mentally. Um, they seem to be quite comfortable with the way that the PZPN has handled everything and, and quarantined those players and kept them away from the squad as uh, the first sign of any symptoms. So it doesn't seem to have really had that much of an effect. OK. We hear Monday morning, Ryan, that Robert Lewandowski is not going to be available, which is huge given the incredible numbers he's put up. I think 47 goals in 42 games for club and country so far this season. Without him, who do you think are the other key players that, that England should be watching out for? I think Kamil Juzviak's looked um, quite impressive when he has played. Uh, he came on against Hungary. He was one of two substitutions. He and Krzysztof Piontek, who came on in the 59th minute and by the 61st minute, both of them had scored. Uh, and Juzviak got the assist for Piontek's goal as well. So he looks like he's, he can be an impact player when he's, when he's allowed that space. He, he did show a lot of glimpses tonight. Uh, got an assist tonight as well. So so he's probably the more exciting one. Um, Piontek as well, if if he can get the space, he, he can cause massive threats to the England defence. He did so in Serie A with uh, Milan and with Genoa. Mm. Um, and, he, and he started to pick up that form again uh, a bit with uh, Hertha Berlin as well. So those two would probably be the most dangerous ones to watch out for. Ryan Hubbard there. Oof. What do you think? Are you concerned that England may not get the 2-0 against Poland, Charlie? Would you take any scoreline against them? I think it would be greedy to you know, set my sights too exclusively on a 2-0. I think I would, in this case, uh, take any victory. What's strange about this is a period of you, you can't really win um, as an international team. It's quite strange that you're building up to a tournament where normally you'd want to be experimenting and you know trying different systems, playing different players, but you're not playing friendlies. Uh, you you're in this position where like this is actually a pretty big game so it is it is quite difficult I think for an international manager now getting that balance right if you want to test players out before a major tournament but also you've also got another tournament beyond it to qualify right. for and for European sides that must be pretty much unprecedented this is what fruit once again of, of the calendar shift of the World Cup moving to December uh, for reasons which etc and so on uh, okay so uh, England Poland on Wednesday before we leave the subject of England, under-21s, Charlie, I see another big letdown for 
under-21s, uh, many supporters beaten 2-0 by Portugal on Sunday night, which means that whatever they get against Croatia on Wednesday, if Switzerland get a point or more against Portugal, then England will be crashing out of the group stages for the fifth time in six tournaments at a time when England's younger generation is, is supposedly the, the envy of many nations. What's going on, Charlie? Yeah, and I don't think many neutral observers of this tournament will be mourning England's departure because they've been pretty abject. I mean, they've had in their two games, they've had one shot on target, which was um, a free kick, a pretty speculative free kick. So no shots on target in open play, no shots on target last night. I thought it was quite funny. Andy Hinchcliffe in commentary earnestly at the end of the game was like, you know, this is where Eddie Boothroyd earns his corn. He's got to make this team believe they can have a shot. You know, they can have a shot on target. And I just thought the, how the dial has shifted, if that's kind of what we're aspiring to, that, you know, we there's no reason to believe we can't get a shot on target. We You know, we can do this, lads. Um, which maybe speaks to kind of what A.D. Boothroyd has done to our uh, expectation levels because he has made this team, which does have a lot of exciting attacking talent, you know when you watch football and you, you kind of forget how a chance can be created? It's, it looks so hard. It looks like, you know, you watch a kind of under-11s team and they're playing on a pitch that's way too big for them and they're like, they're just not going to reach the goal. I kind of had that feeling watching England, I think, in the 21s yesterday. Just zero creativity. Um, and it it does seem a shame because, as you say, James, there is so much talent at that level. Um, it's an important, should be an important developmental stage for these guys. And it looks like they're being managed by someone who the game has passed him by a little bit, um, as, as harsh as that sounds. That conversation could have been ported directly from 2019 and the, and the, the, the previous tournament. Um, is it is it just a kind of bureaucratic oversight, the fact that A.D. Boothroyd is still in charge? <laughs> no one was watching that tournament. Right, kind of I don't know. Did, didn't realise. Yeah, I mean, he's going to be the first thing the manager ever potentially to manage at two major tournaments and not win a game. Um, and it does seem extraordinary that that they did stick with him for this tournament and it is playing out more or less the same. And as you say, even going before that, um, I mean, surely after this, that has to, even if he can raise the team to the heady heights of a shot on target, this has to be the end, surely. He's he's out of contract, I think, this summer. Sasha, I think you wanted yeah. to... I'm just, I'm just wondering with with this. So England have a fine selection of players. I think take take say France find a selection of players. Uh, England, I have no idea what sort of football they try to play. France, same uh, against Russia yesterday, for example. Is there an argument to say that sometimes with the bigger nations, if you have, if you don't have the right coach, they're just hoping that because the players are good enough, they will just figure it out for themselves. Because I don't understand what England are trying to play under Boothroyd, who's been there for years and years, and it's it's really very surprising. Yeah, I think it is. It, it can be difficult because um, you are inclined to pick players on form, whereas that can be quite difficult. I think to to integrate them. You look at a player like Emil Smith Rowe, who who started both games. Uh, this is his first under twenty one call up. Um, now he probably had to be in the squad because he'd been playing for Arsenal and he meets the criteria for age and form. But it, yeah, it, that doesn't then lead to. Uh, a very seamless team ethic being created because nobody's played with him before. Um, that isn't an excuse. It's it's you know it's just a, a reason. Um, but but Sasha's right in that this tournament. You know I was at twenty nineteen, and not just England, but 
there were quite a lot of the big nations who didn't really look to have a system of playing. Spain were the the obvious um, exceptions, and they they won the tournament, um, having lost their first game. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's it's solely down to England, albeit you know that isn't a reason for England not having a shot on target or having one shot on target. I was just going to compare the the Russians um, because I mean they're, they're much weaker um, and. I was watching the first game against Iceland, and okay, Iceland are the weakest team in the group, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Because they were they were playing this really good passing, fast, like really progressive football, which is complete contrast to what you see for the national side. Complete contrast to what, for example, even so for England or even France in the first game against Denmark when they lost one nil. And it was interesting because Russia have this coach, uh, he's Mikhail Galaktionov. He kind of started at the bottom, and he he's a professional, if you like. Uh, youth coach and he has a particular way of playing he's quite an assuming the kids when they come to play for his team they're quite relaxed and they are playing much better than they do in the very stodgy Russian Premier League so in the first game it was like it was as if like you just let them go and they have a 17 year old uh, Zaharian who came in for his debut who absolutely tore the place up should have scored an early goal against France as well but they didn't go in and then France just basically through the quality of players they had about 200 million uh, euros worth of players on the bench just steamrolled Russia and they haven't really recovered from it but I was watching that first game and bits of the second game thinking there is a proper coaching thought in this which I haven't really seen in this big other big sides and I'm wondering whether maybe what but it still wasn't enough to bridge the gap so it's mm. kind of frustrating because you can only go so high up but at least you're playing football who's the 17 year old Sasha it's it's called Arsen Zaharian, and he is the product of actually because I was also thinking as well, where has this generation come from? Russian football has been rubbish. I've been saying for years Russian football has been rubbish and getting worse. But it seems to me that what is finally paying off is the fact that the league is poor. It has no money, so they have to promote these kids because there is also this quota system where they, whereby they have to play a number of homegrown players, and it hasn't really paid off so far because you see this journeyman wandering around just playing because they have a Russian passport. But now you finally see this generation of kids who, in the last couple of seasons have been playing in the Russian Premier League for the big Moscow sides, for example. And also Santos, guys like Sandro Schwartz uh, from Mainz with Jelko Buvac at Dinamo Moscow, who have absolutely no kind of, they have no prejudices. They, they come in as, as the outsiders. They don't care, really care that much about the result. They care about the process. So this Arsene Zaharian, he started playing in the last um, literally couple of months in the first team, and he comes into the under-21s for his debut, and he's, he's excellent. He's really good balance, great balance. Arshavin looks at him and goes, yeah, he's better than I was at 17, because mm-hmm. Arshavin was only playing 20, 30 minutes when he was 19. So in a way, the league becoming rubbish helps these, has, helps these young players through, as we see now. Sasha, uh, listeners won't forgive me if I don't ask you about the venue for uh, the Iceland game, Gjör. A Dior, yeah. Uh, what are the Napoleonic connotations of that? <laughs> <laughs> Battle of Dior um, in, or oh, it was called Rab uh, back then as well, like a German German name or the Hungarian name. Uh, it's uh, Prince. Uh, Eugène de Beauharnais, uh, who is the adopted son of Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, marched towards there in 1809 with the Army of Italy, uh, James' uh, Italian connection there. And he um, basically knocked the uh, Austro-Hungarian army out of a very good defensive position. And eventually later, uh, this had significant impact on the outcome of the Battle of Wagram, uh, which right. uh, ended the War of the Fifth Coalition uh, for the victorious French. Did mm. they qualify? They qualified for the next round, yes. Right. Okay. This feels like the equivalent of a bodybuilder flexing his muscles before a qu- before our quiz. <laughs> Shots ah. across the bow, yeah. 
No special subject, thankfully, uh, in, in no. uh, this year's uh, opening set of fixtures in the Intertotally, which, yes, Daniel, is is coming up a little bit later on. In fact, not too much later, because next up is part three with a little bit of On This Day, and then let's get our quiz on. Keep listening for Sasha Gorionov versus Daniel Story in the Paddy Power Intertotally Cup. And we apologise for any bad language you may hear. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. 29th of March, listener. Did you know that it's four years ago on this day that Madeira International Airport was renamed Cristiano Ronaldo Airport with, and this you may recall, a special bust unveiled, a bust that provoked a really powerful reaction amongst anyone pretty much gazing at it. The depiction of Ronaldo was a kind of curious, gurning one, not unlike some observers were moved to comment, former Formula One driver David Coutard, but gurning. Or I felt, um, you know that the weird fellow out of Lazy Town, Robbie Rotten, with the Lazy Town viewers will know who I'm talking about. It looks similar to him. Anyway, uh, chastened sculptor Emmanuel Santos uh, was forced to go away and make a second bust, which he unveiled about a year later, and that was received more kindly, although I now learned that that one was quietly replaced at the family's request by a new bust of Ronaldo uh, created by an anonymous Spanish sculptor. Hmm. Okay. Ronaldo, of course, has that other statue in Madeira as well, which is uh, famous for its erection, which occurred in 2014. Uh, what's your favourite footballing statue? You can make jokes about immobile defenders if you like, Daniel. Favourite, favourite, actual favourite is the Brian Clough statue in, in okay. Nottingham City Centre. Uh, favourite, silly favourite is there's a Michael Essien statue um, in Ghana, which looks, I mean, incredibly haunted. Uh, it, it, I don't think it has the eyeballs, so it just sort of has holes where the eyes are, which <laughs> does him absolutely no favours at all. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a bad one. I like the Alan Shearer one where they must have said before, and like just to double check on his celebration, yeah, we've definitely got that right. Very simple, just hand up. And he, instead he's got a kind of finger pointing. Um, and I just like the idea that no one sort of checked that. There's also a weird one. The Tony Adams one outside the Emirates, he looks more like Roger Federer than Tony Adams. It's quite strange. I, I don't know if that's been pointed out to either Tony Adams or Roger Federer. And yeah, and on Arsenal statues, I did enjoy uh, Paul Lintz 
um, talking mm. about how you know you wouldn't see Thierry Henry and Dennis Bergkamp having statues at Arsenal. Um, and but Roger Federer, yes. Little did he know. Ro- Roger Federer, yeah, that's absolutely fine. But uh, Henri and Bergkamp feels like a step too far. Right. Sasha, what would you go for? Would it be the, the Coupe de Tête outside the Pompidou Centre, which is a an immortalisation of, of that moment between Matarazzi and Zidane? That was uh, that's quite, that, that one's quite spectacular. For, for some reason, for football statues, I always think of Lenin outside the Luzhniki. Um, oh, yeah. I don't really think of a player. Um, also, in terms of awful ones, uh, there was that one of Salah uh, unveiled in Sharm el-Sheikh in 2018. Uh, he has this oversized head and bouffant and this mm. really weird facial expression. Looks like a dwarf in pain, basically. Um, it's it's pretty <laughs> terrible. Uh, there, is, um, there is a nice statue, actually, in... Uh, in Budapest, I think it's in Obuda, of uh, Ferenc Pushkas doing little kipi-uppies with a few kids looking on. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. We got through that without mentioning Michael Jackson or Tofik Baramov. So that's good. Also, Daniel, 29th of March is the anniversary of what? It's the earliest relegation in Premier League history of Derby County 0708. Mm. It gives me no season. great pleasure to say. Yeah. <laughs> I All saw right, them then. play that season against Liverpool uh, when Liverpool needed a last-minute winner at Pride Park, and it was a really mm. difficult game around Christmas time. And I was thinking, no, 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 we can't draw points here. Can't draw points here. It'd be so, so bad. All right. Yeah, it was, well. it was Tor- Torres scored, and then Gerrard scored in the last yeah. minute. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing about that season, they started, and I, re- I re- read a piece on this quite recently. They started with a draw against Portsmouth, and uh, who were a decent side at that time. And it was like, you know, okay, we're 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 in the we're in the Premier League now, and, th- and they won in what was only what I think their sixth game. So they didn't. St- they had like four points from six games. It didn't look necessarily like it was going to be this absolute catastrophe of a season. But then obviously, <laughs> uh, yeah. The two off. turning points. The two turning points were Captain Matt Oakley saying on the eve of the season that no player wanted to join the club, and then Billy Davies in November saying that the current players were nowhere near good enough for the Premier League. Which, in terms of motivational messages from key members of the club, wasn't ideal, I think. Um, and yeah, their new manager bounce was was pretty sensational under Paul Jewell. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Jewell's never recovered, has he? From that, I'm not sure Derby have. They had a weird January as well where they brought in like Laurent Robert, which feels kind of hard to believe that he was still knocking around at that point. Savage came in, didn't he? I mean, they kind of signed a couple of players who their best Premier League days were, were probably behind them. Crikey. I mean, Huddersfield almost beat this record, should say. I mean, I think Huddersfield, when they got relegated a couple of years ago, was 1st of April, it was confirmed, um, maybe 31st of March. So a record that looked unbeatable. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very nearly was. Of course, it's slightly down to the vagaries of when seasons start and end, but the 11 yeah. points mark, that's going to take, you feel, some beating. Anyway, hmm. well, the fun's not over in today's uh, Totally Football Show because next up, it's the moment we've all been waiting for, the Inter-Totally Cup. The Inter-Totally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy's offers are at full capacity. Get a free bet if one leg of your four-plus fold acca lets you down on all football matches and markets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. Inter-Totally time, back for its second edition, of course, this season, uh, along with the traditional wall chart and sticker album. Every packet that I get has got three or four Daniel stories in. I'm looking for a Jack Lang if anyone has a Jack. Get in touch. Uh, anyway, it's our second contest today after reigning champion Michael Cox narrowly pipped Tom Williams on Thursday. Who's up today? Well, let's meet him. 
first. He is the Ivan Drago of Totally, with a steroid-enhanced body and a state-engineered mind. Yippee-ki-yay, Mother Russia, it's Sasha Gorionov. Sasha, what's that music? It's uh, from Kinzadza. Uh, it's a sci-fi film from 1986. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so these guys basically end up on a different planet dealing with all sorts. Uh, but it's it's kind of one of those gems of Soviet cinema, which um, which anyone who grew up back in the USSR will immediately recognize the tune. Nice. Uh, now, you were eliminated at this stage last year. So, yeah, I imagine there's a certain amount of nerves right now. I can feel the tingling. Uh, my okay. head is standing, <laughs> and yeah. Uh, new to this year's competition, uh, the winner of each match will be earning ten pounds for the charity of your choice, which Paddy Power will then uh, place on a bet, also of your choosing, with the winnings also going to charity. Who's who's your nominated charity going to be, Sash? Uh, Battersea Dogs and Cats Home. Uh, oh. Obviously, we have cats and dogs at home here, and uh, I think this time. Under COVID, I think a lot of people uh, take pets and don't necessarily keep them because they just they understand a bit too late that they are not. This is not really for them. So I think I think it's it's actually quite a hard time for for, for the pets potentially. So um, uh, Battersea Dogs and Cats Homes uh, helps find them a new home, and I believe that at the moment uh, they probably are quite stretched. Yeah, lovely stuff. All right, now for your opponent. And his opponent, he was a runner-up last year, but can he do one better or will his self-doubt be self-defeating? He is the ultimate warrior, Daniel Story. Yeah, Ben Green giving you confidence a big boost there, <laughs> uh, Daniel. Yeah. So so runner-up last year, nine months you spent living with that defeat in the final. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I was blown away by... Michael Cox almost getting full marks so there's no no shame in that and there will be no shame in losing to Shasha either <laughs> mind <laughs> games <laughs> the thing is it normally it normally would be mind games wouldn't it but it's not mind games <laughs> I, I, I'm actually nearly crying here now <laughs> uh, Daniel what's your charity of choice uh, Bliss which uh, supports babies and families of babies who are born severely prematurely okay Uh, Good, let's get some questions then, Sasha. You're up first. Sasha, question one. What was unusual about Bruno Fernandes' goal in Manchester United's win at Brighton earlier this season? Uh, It came after the final whistle. That is correct. Question two. What do the 1934, 1966, 1978, 2010 and 2014 World Cup finals have in common? So could you repeat the dates again, James? Sorry. Yeah, I... sure. So question two, what do the following World Cup finals have in common? 1934, 1966, 1978, 2010 and 2014. What do they all have in common? So 34 Italy, um, 2014, uh, um, 78 Argentina. Would you like to buy time by asking me to repeat the question again, sir? Uh, no, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just. Uh, hang on, a second. Uh, he's, got help, going, he's got help here by the sound yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that they were won by the home team. Where um, are you going to say that? And then what did you decide? Hang, tw- Twenty for twenty fourteen was what? Uh, I'm being really, really slow here. Twenty four? No, twenty fourteen definitely wasn't. Uh, I don't know. Daniel, can you help him? 
something about the previous winners were in the final? No, oh, they were all one after extra time. Oh. Extra time, 30, oh, of course, 30. Mm. Question three then. John Terry was one, but who was the other player to miss a penalty for Chelsea in the 2008 Champions League final in Moscow? Nikola Anelka. That is correct. Question four. I'm going to give you a list of clubs from Zlatan Ibrahimovic's career history. Which one is missing? Malmo, Milan, LA Galaxy, Manchester United, Paris Saint-Germain, Inter, Barcelona, Ajax. Which club is missing? I was about to say Ajax. Um, So... Uh, Milan, LA Galaxy, United. Uh, I was about to say Ajax. Uh, what is he? Milan, United. Malmo, Milan, LA Galaxy, Manchester United, Paris Saint-Germain, Inter, Barcelona and Ajax. Juventus, Juventus. Ah, shame. Correct. Played against Real Liverpool, shame, couldn't man. score. 2005, right. kept them quiet. Question five. For which club... Does Andres Iniesta currently play? Uh, I just literally looked at it this morning because their manager was connected with Spartak. Vissel Kobe? Jesus Christ. Ooh. He's correct. He's correct. Put in, Sash. Wow. That's, uh, that's impressive preparation. Uh, literally, I, j- just before the show, I was looking at the news and this, he was the, the manager whose name I actually don't remember was there with Iniesta. It sounded to me like Sasha's baby shouted Vissel Kobe a minute ago. <laughs> Do you know, in any other family, I doubt it, but with the Grinnells. So four Impressive out of five. slash suspicious preparation. <laughs> four, four out of five for Sasha. I was just Grinnells. browsing the Vissel Kobe website earlier, actually. <laughs> Stripey shirts, yeah. So, um, Sasha, you're pretty happy with that scoreline, I imagine. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm made up. Um, I think it's much better than I did last year. Okay. Let's see how Daniel can respond to that. Daniel, are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, question one. Who scored a hat-trick in Aston Villa's 7-2 win over Liverpool this season? Ollie Watkins. Correct. Question two. In the context of the European Cup, what do Feyenoord, Aston Villa, PSV and Red Star Belgrade have in common? Uh, Play one final, one one final. Is correct. Question three, David Beckham was one, but who was the other player to miss a penalty for England against Portugal in their shootout at Euro 2004? So the England-Portugal shootout, Euro 2004, two players missed. David Beckham is one. The problem is, is we played Portugal twice and lost twice on penalties. So you've got Carragher, but was that 06? Was it Skulls? Is that your answer? Yeah, I don't think it's It's Duras right, Vassell. Yeah. Oh, of course it is. Question four. Can I read you a list of clubs from Yaya Toure's career history? Tell me which one is missing. Qingdao, Olympiacos, Manchester City, Beveren, oh. Metalurg Donetsk, and Barcelona. There's a club missing. Do you want the names again? Uh, please. Qingdao, Olympiacos, Manchester City, Beveren, Metalurg Donetsk, and Barcelona. Yaya Turi played at which other club? <sighs> In my head, it, mm, I'm probably being stupid here. I don't know is the honest answer. I, would, I thought it might be in Turkey, but um, it wasn't. 
Galatasaray? No, no Turkey's always a good shout for those kind of questions. Yeah. It was actually Monaco, which means you've already dropped two points. Yeah, that's that, I'm afraid. And that is that. But here's, here's question five anyway. At which yeah. club is Xavi currently manager? Uh, Al Sad. It is Al Sad. And, and that's how you must be feeling as yeah. you exit this year's Inter That's Alan Cup. Shearer looking at his statue with a finger pointed high. <laughs> That level of Al Sad, taking it very, very, very sportingly from. Oh, no, from the Sasha final. was a machine. Fine, very well mm. played. So four three, then Sasha wins it, and remarkably, we received a tweet what twenty three minutes ago from Sam at Amy Gatehouse, saying predicting a nervy four three Sasha win. Crikey! I feel like I'm in the Truman Show with this now. I feel right. like I need to go reassess. Sasha, how do you feel? I feel I feel drained, you know, like yeah. after a big game, uh, you're so psyched and you put everything into it and you're basically crawling off the pitch, a bit like De Bruyne when, when he comes off and uh, he can barely walk. Okay, all right. Well, you better uh, get yourself ready, do plenty of browsing of uh, niche websites um, <laughs> in preparation for your next round, which is going to pit you against Duncan Alexander or Adrian Clark. So... Can I also say as, as well for, for Daniel? I think, uh, yeah, as I said, you know, it's it's uh, it's all about the questions that you get, and I um, I was it was extremely nervous about facing Daniel with with his knowledge, his reputation, and uh, yeah, I'm just uh, I can't can't quite believe this. All right, well, it's all about the questions that you get, but also, Sash, the answers that you give, and you gave them so very well. Uh, congratulations, then you've earned a place in the next round, and that brings us to the end of this uh, Totally Football show. We'll be back on Thursday with another round of the quiz and um, one or two other things as well. So many, many thanks to Daniel, to Charlie and to Sasha for being with us this morning. And you, listener, for hanging around and catching us a little bit later than usual. Have a great time till Thursday from all of us here. It's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. That was a really worrying time being a Rangers fan, not knowing if you'd have a team to support or not. The Scottish Football League's only acceptable position will be to place Rangers FC into the third division. It wasn't so much a football match you were involved in as a test of manhood. And with your support along the way, we will get back to where we belong. From the bottom to the top, the journey is over. Rangers are back. It all ended spectacularly in Europe when he had an argument with Rangers fans in a bush. It's a huge, huge honour for me to be sat here now to be the manager of Rangers. And, you know, the excitement levels are very difficult to contain at the moment. Drilled by Arfield, Connor Goldson looking to score again! And he has scored again! And Rangers are in such a good place now! Everybody in Scotland was talking about 10 this at the start of the season and the only number they're now talking about is 55. To get the full story of the fall and rise of Rangers, subscribe now to Beyond the Headline.
The Athletic.